I'd like you to think about how you describe someone. Like, let's take someone in the front row here. This guy here. I'm not going to use his name. That'll come clear later. <clears throat> but most of you know this guy in the front row. How would you describe him? And you can't, it's nothing, no physicality. You all know this guy. How, how would you describe him? No physical features. You probably have to use some context. You probably have to find him in some situation and describe how he responded or what he said. Or you might describe his character or his personality. How you describe someone. What if it's someone really important? What if you want to get to know someone like the President of the United States? That would be pretty hard to do. He's got an entourage. He's very well protected. You might have to settle with spending time with someone who's close to him. This week I listened to a podcast, and the interviewee was the chief of staff, the president's chief of staff. He is in the inner circle. He is his right-hand man. He knows what's going on. And it was revealing, because you can get about that close to someone, because that person is very close to that person. And I think that's what uh, I'd like to do this morning, except on a different level. I would like, my heart's desire is for you to know God better. And so in order to do that, I would like to introduce you to someone who knows God very well. He's in his inner circle. He knows him quite well. And this is a prophet, the prophet Nahum. Let's have a show of hands. Who has heard of the prophet Jonah? You know something about Jonah. Okay. All right. Who, has, who knows about Nahum? Okay. So I figured. I mentioned it to someone this week, and they said, how do you spell that? I acknowledge it's a pretty obscure person. <clears throat> uh, Nahum is known as a minor prophet because he didn't write very much. There are 12 prophets in the Old Testament. Three of them are major because they wrote a lot of words. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Isaiah. That leaves nine more. Uh, six of those wrote concerning uh, Israel and Judah. That leaves three. Uh, one of them wrote concerning uh, Edom exclusively. That leaves two more. These are the two, Jonah and Nahum. And they both wrote concerning a nation called Assyria. The capital is Nineveh. If you're into geography, that's uh, in Iraq, kind of where the town of Mosul is today. That's where Nineveh is. And so Jonah wrote about Nineveh, and then Nahum later, about 100 years later, wrote about Nahum, about Nineveh. So if we learn to understand Nahum, we will know God better. 
Have you ever read something in the Bible or understood something in history and, ha- and thought, how could God do that? If you've ever thought that, then Nahum will help you. Nahum is uh, in the Pew Bible on page 782. Uh, I realize it's an obscure one. If you haven't already found it, you may have to use your table of contents. But it's after Micah and before Habakkuk. It's only three chapters long. And the first verse tells us uh, it's an oracle concerning Nineveh. The book of the visions of, the, of Nahum of Elkosh. Now, we know so little about Nahum. It says he's from Elkosh, but we don't know where Elkosh is. Um, some people think that Capernaum, city of Nahum, Capernaum, but we don't know. We just know so little about who he is. But we have this uh, quite uncontested writing of his. It's a prophecy, highly poetical, you'll see. In fact, he is noted as the poet laureate of the minor prophets. He uses every poetic style that there is. And this morning, we're going to look at eight verses. These verses cover uh, what's been argued to be a poem an acrostic poem using the letters of the alphabet. Like if we wrote a poem A, B, C, D through H, and the letter began each of those eight verses, that's kind of what Nahum has done here. But it's not so much about who knows him, but who he knows. And so before I read verses 2 through 8, take a few seconds and ask yourself, Uh, How would you describe God? Because he has no physicality. He's not wearing a certain color shirt. So how would you describe God? Nahum chapter 1, verses 2 through 8. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers, Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, 
and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of his adversaries, and he will pursue his enemies into darkness. That's Nahum's poem. How did you do? When you were thinking about how you describe God and how Nahum describes God, was there any overlap at all? Perhaps not. In fact, some of this is, um, can be disturbing even, offending to some people's sensibilities. They're not comfortable with God being described this way or being this way. Nahum is about to describe uh, the downfall of Assyria and Nineveh in pretty graphic terms. It's a PG book. I have some friends who, who don't believe in God's wrath. I think Nahum has a lot to teach us. But we do well to try to know God as he wants to be known, to know him as he reveals himself. And this is what we have here before us. We should beware of knowing God by sound bites. If you describe your mom, um, mom cooks, mom cleans, mom drives car, mom does laundry, sound bites. How well do you know my mom? Not very well. It takes much more context. It takes much more, a deeper description of someone. And we have that here about God from Nahum. We often like to quote things like um, Psalm 30. He turned my dancing, he turned my mourning into dancing. That's very encouraging. I enjoy it myself. But what about Lamentations 5? And he turned my dancing into mourning. I googled that. It didn't come up. The other one came up. So it just goes to show how how ignorant, how unused these realities uh, are amongst us, amongst population. But the fact is that the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he certainly punishes the evil. And we find that strange sometimes to us, but it's really required. If God is good, if God is loving, he has to be the way Nahum is describing him. When we're tempted to think, how could God do this? It means that your, your zoom lens is in way too close. When you have thoughts like that, you have to zoom way out and take a much bigger view of what's going on, what's being described, and who's involved. Never take a single incident or a single event and allow that to define God. It takes much of history 
to do that, and, and Nahum is going to help us with that. But God is not sound bites. He is a person. He has personality. He has character. In verses 2 and 3, we have something repeated five times. It's something the poet is, is hammering poetically over and over. And it's, it's this, this name, this person. Who is Nahum describing these five times? This is confusing, and so I have a slide. If you can see that. This is not a Hebrew lesson. This is a history lesson. What has happened is God has a name. I should ask, first of all, if you ask someone in our English community, English-speaking community, what's the name of the creator in the Christian tradition? What's the name of the creator? People would say, God. Of course, people would say God. But that's not God's name. God is a title. It's used throughout the Bible. It's even used about uh, false gods. And what's happened is uh, what is really God's name that's used as his name is this, this four-letter word up there, the tetragrammaton. It means four-letter word. That's why you can't say it. Not really. But. It, it was so holy to uh, the, the Hebrew, the devout Hebrew people that they would never speak it. And so how it was pronounced got lost over the hundreds and hundreds, thousands of years. So we don't know how this word is pronounced. We have some guesses. But what's happened in the translation in our English Bibles, most of them anyway, when it comes to this word that nobody knows how to pronounce, the name of God, they put in the Lord in all caps. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. The Lord. But in English, the word Lord, like the word God, is not a name, it's a title. Which means master. I mean, it's not a name, it's a, it's a position. And so, why does this matter at all? We have this person in the front row with no name. This, this guy in front row, we will call him. We can think about him, we can describe him, because we know him, his personality, we know how he is, this guy in front row. And so, but we don't know his name, we can't use that, so we just call him guy in front row. That's kind of what's happened. I know it's ridiculous, but that's kind of the situation. And so it's not to tell people how to refer to God, but just to know that two things, the bottom line, when your Bible says the Lord, all caps, it's saying this thing up here, which is just God's name. And Nahum is using it five times in two verses. He's describing not an office, not a location, not where someone sits. It's the person. It's the person. The guy in front row is Darren. The 
guy in front row has name. Okay? And so just to know that there's a, whatever difference it might make to you to know that Nahum and many others, but through the thousands of times this is used, is describing a person. God is a person. And we want to get to know him a little bit better today. Verse 2, the Lord, I'm going to say Yahweh just to make it personal. Uh, Yahweh is jealous and avenging God. Wow. Jealous and avenging. He has motivation for his action. And again, this sounds strange to be talking about God this way. Is this, is this right? Is this good? Um, I'd rather think about Jesus. Well, if you were in the temple that day when Jesus showed up with a cord and started whipping around, overturning tables and kicking people out, the motivation is right there. Not so different. But that's thousands of years forward from where we are right now in this book. Jealous and avenging. We, we struggle over, stumble over this word jealous. We think it's a, kind of a, a bad thing. And jealousy is, is about what's rightfully yours. Uh, this guy, Ralph Smith, says, Jealousy, in essence, is an intolerance of rivals. And so for men and women, uh, it could be a virtue or a sin, depending on the legitimacy of the rival. Now, if there's a nice car parked out here in the lot, and I'm eyeing it up, and I know who owns it, and I become jealous, that's wrong. That does not belong to me. It belongs to someone else. I have no claim to that. It's not legitimate. But if I'm jealous for my wife, now I have rightful claim. No one else has a legitimate claim. That's good. So there's a big difference. When God is jealous, he cares. He wants the best for those he cares about. He's jealous for you, frankly, if you didn't know that. He's jealous for you. But he's jealous and avenging. And so that brings up, if he's jealous, he can be avenging He may not be uh, a, a kitty cat. He's more like a lion. And so we have to think through those things. But avenging, uh, we think of avenging as being uh, taking revenge. No, no, no. Uh, God doesn't do that, and you shouldn't either. Uh, avenging is to execute retribution. It's giving someone what they deserve. It's paying them back. It's objective. It's not... Uh, some subjective revenge taking out of passion. Yahweh is avenging and wrathful. He keeps wrath for his enemies. Wrath, uh, the word wrath means to be hot, like hot with anger. Rage, intense fury, that's wrath. It's in many of our hymns. And like I mentioned, I have a friend who just doesn't, so it's not comfortable. It doesn't, it's not true. But, but it is. If we understand who Yahweh is. 
He's angry. Angry comes from this uh, image, actually, of someone's nostrils flaring because they got mad. I actually have a relative who's known for this. If he gets upset, his nostrils flare. But God gets angry. And it's important. Uh, The famous preacher Henry Ward Beecher said, a person who doesn't know how to be angry doesn't know how to be good. And the same is said of God. If he cannot be angry, he cannot be good. Because being good requires the potential for anger. I mean, you surely know about many of these things, the abuse in the world. There's over 50 countries now where Christians are killed every day. The terror that goes on. The oppression primarily by men on others for their own pleasure. Human trafficking. Abortion. If you think deeply about these things and you don't get angry... I have questions for you. I'm mostly through a book called Compelling Interest. It's the story of uh, Roe versus Wade. And I get angry. Learning the truth, learning the details. It's upsetting. God cares about these things deeply as well. He's jealous. He wants the best for his people. And these things make him mad. Now, in passing, I'll mention that there are some theologians who hold to um, this idea called impassibility. Essentially, it means that God does not respond. God does not react to you or anything that happens. Yes, he hates evil and he loves good, but about what happens... He does not respond. That flies in the face of what Nahum is saying here. God saw the affliction of his people and he sent Moses from the burning bush. God is angry with the wicked every day. Didn't we hear that last week from Troy? But what sort of anger does he have? Because... You and I, we get angry. Let's admit it. But verse 3 tells us about the type of anger God has. It says he's slow to anger. God, God boils over, but he boils over slowly. Why do we get angry? We get angry because somebody drew outside the line of our personal expectation and we get upset we feel justified to lash out in passion it's, it's just plain evil but God is slow to anger Yahweh is slow to anger he comes to a slow boil a friend of mine once said beware the wrath of a patient man it fits But patience is not a weakness. Uh, uh, Yahweh is not some CEO or businessman who makes these snap decisions about things that he can't be too confident about, the stock market, the future, things that happen. God is not like that. 
He has all the time in the world. He can be patient. He can wait for someone to behave differently. Maybe then he'll be able to offer them forgiveness. But if not, then there's even more justification for the judgment. His patience is is compassionate. He is thought through and justified, completely in control, and absolutely irrefutable. That's Yahweh. He's not like, like, like a president. If a president wants to grant clemency, or if he wants to write some executive order, he has to do it while he's in office. Yahweh has no term limit. He has all power over all things at all times. Still in our poem in verse 3, and the, the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Nobody in the long term will get away with anything before him. Here we can compare Jonah and Nahum. Uh, everybody knows about Jonah and the, the fish and these sorts of things. Jonah preached to, to the same group of people a hundred years earlier. And he said, repent. We kind of hope they wouldn't. He said, repent, and they did. And God forgave them. He did not wipe out Nineveh at that time. He's going to soon, according to what Nahum is saying. So Jonah is emphasizing the love of God on the compassion on these people who repent. Nahum is bringing the justice of God. His wrath is being emphasized. A hundred years later, because these people who repented, they repented of their repentance, and they've gotten so evil that judgment's coming. And Nahum's going to write all about that. Yahweh, it says he's, he can, he uses his ways in the whirlwind and the storm. Now we are so powerless, but his way is in whirlwind and storm. Nothing, what good can come from a, a tornado or a storm? Just run for your shelter. Right? No. Much bigger picture, Yahweh is able to use the storm. He's able to use the, the tornado even. That's his way. He is that awesome. The clouds are the dust of his feet. These monstrous clouds. I've flown amongst them. They can be thousands of feet thick and miles long. This is just the dust of his feet a metaphor of how huge and powerful he is. How powerful is he? Verses 4 through 6. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. Very likely an allusion to when he's done that in the past. He brought Israel across the Red Sea, dried it up. They walked across on dry land. Same thing across the Jordan River. Same thing. The seas dry up. The mountains quake. They they shake. If he can shake the mountains, like he did at Mount Sinai, can he not shake Nineveh? Yeah, he's going to. 
verse 6, these questions, rhetorical questions, who can stand before his indignation? He's angry. Who can endure the heat of his anger? God is enraged, indignant, boiling over. The Assyrians, these people uh, actually should have known this. They should have known how, how powerful Yahweh is. They had attacked Jerusalem a few years earlier with a huge army, and they were going to assault Jerusalem in the time of Hezekiah. We'll talk more about it later. But in one night, Yahweh wiped them all out. 185,000, if I have the number right. A huge army, all wiped out in one night. And so they should have known the hot anger that Yahweh can have against them. And, you know, Assyria was actually an instrument of God's to discipline other nations. He was using them. But they so misused their role. They were so cruel and abusive that they are going to be judged for it. We see his character. Two and three, we see his power in four to six. And now let's look at his goodness in seven and eight. The Lord is good. Actually, this is, the, this is the only thing I ever knew about Nahum for many years. Just a verse that someone shared with me and I, I memorized it and it's, that's all I knew about Nahum. It's actually a good verse that it's not what the book is about, but it sure is the tenor. You have to have this verse to really have the rest of it in context. The Lord is good. After saying all these things, the Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. As we, if we read verses 2 through 6, and you ask yourself before you read verse 7 about this Yahweh, this God, is this, is this someone you want to sit next to at church? It might be kind of scary. He's avenging, wrathful. Nobody gets away with anything. But verse 7, he is good. He is good. You do want to get close to him. Would you like him to be your protector or your pursuer? It's kind of an option we have. Like in Narnia and Aslan, they're asking about Aslan, this big roaring lion. Is he safe? Who said anything about safe? He's not safe, but he is good. It applies here. And this description, this poem, should, have, should bring Israel closer to trust him, and we as well. God is good, and he's a refuge, but he will completely dominate his enemies. Verse 8, the Lord is good, but, is how we understand it. He is good, but you won't get away with anything. With an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end. 
of the adversary and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Psalm 31.23 says, The Lord preserves the faithful. Sounds like Jonah. But abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. The message of Nahum. We see this, uh, we see this in the policeman at the street corner. He might help an old lady across the street, but he's going to ticket the jaywalker. Both. Hopefully this is exhibited in, in all of our homes. Parents, of course, have uh, a godly combination of love and discipline to their children. So what does this mean? We put this poem together, this description of who Yahweh is. He's not, he's not guy in front row. He's God with a name. He's God with character. He's God with emotions. And it matters. His character gives him the motivation to act. His power gives him the ability to act on that motivation. And if you stop there, you're pretty dangerous. That might be how most people are. But with Yahweh, his goodness makes all that come together in a righteous way. God is good. And so he is therefore trustworthy. He is trustworthy. So meet Yahweh. He might be different than you expected. You've met someone before and thought, oh, I thought they would have been different. I don't know. You know? We have a lifetime to get to know God. And we'll discover, we may discover some new things about him. There could be some things in this prophecy of Nahum that, that are new to us, that we have to sort of cozy up to slowly. I get that. But we are, we are so in danger of envisioning God according to the figment of our imagination rather than the, uh, according to his divine revelation. And so we need to submit our ideas to what the Bible says. And here, Nahum helps us do that. So I declare to you that this is, this is Yahweh, and he is trustworthy. Do you trust him? David trusted him. In Psalm 43, 2, he said, For you are the God in whom I take refuge. But it's okay to struggle with that. David sure did. If you read the rest of that psalm, it, is, it shows some struggle. But life is hard. David in Psalm 18, 2 said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God my rock, and whom I take refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. You wonder, did, did David know Nahum or vice versa? No, they lived way apart. But they both knew the same Yahweh. And so they write about him the same way. 
Isn't your God, this God, someone you can take refuge in? It's my prayer that today, each one of us could in some way know God somehow better, find him more trustworthy, and act on that trust. We all have trust issues. There's all, we all have something that we need to trust the Lord with more deeply. Struggle with that. Take one step forward in trusting him in that way. If you're here and you, you have no confidence that your sins are forgiven, that you have assurance of heaven forever, then I have to inform you that the Yahweh that we've been describing, reading about from Nahum, who knew him quite well, he is your adversary. Your sin makes him, to you, an enemy. But he, he wants to protect you if you will run to him for refuge, but you have to repent. This all-powerful, good and loving God wants to be your refuge, but he hates sin. It separates you from him. Unless you turn from him and turn toward Yahweh, he is patient. But like the difference between Jonah and Nahum, his patience will run out. And there will be judgment. And you don't want to face the Yahweh that we're learning about as an adversary. His patience is salvation, but it will run out. We sang, a mighty fortress is our God. Our prayer meeting this morning, we were in Psalm 34. Um, Taste and see that the Lord is good. He is a refuge. He is someone we can trust. Let's all trust him today.